ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Today's story starts on one cool autumn day when Sarah Ogilvie was in the basement archive of the Oxford University Press, wandering among the silent shelves of dusty boxes. She randomly pulled a box down from one of the shelves and opened the lid. Inside was a black book bound with a cream ribbon. Sarah undid that ribbon and looking at what was written inside, she realised immediately that she had found something extraordinary. That book sent her on a quest that would lead to three murderers, Karl Marx's daughter, the inventor of the tennis net adjuster, and a reclusive nudist in Brisbane, along with many other men and women who had been all but forgotten by history, but whose collective endeavour created one of the great human intellectual achievements, the Oxford English Dictionary. Sarah tells their stories in her book, The Dictionary People. Hi, Sarah. Hello, Sarah. Tell me, Sarah, about that autumn day when you found yourself in the archive. Great, yes. So you go into Oxford University Press, which is a beautiful old building on Walton Street, and down in the basement is where they store the dictionary archive. And we've always known that the dictionary in the 19th century was one of the first crowdsourced projects, but we've never known exactly who all those people were who responded. And so I was down in the archive looking around and I found, as as you described, a dusty box and inside was this little black book. And as soon as I opened it, I recognise the immaculate handwriting of Sir James Murray, who was the longest serving editor of the Oxford English Dictionary. And the more I looked through the pages of this book, I realised that all these names and addresses were the names and addresses of all those people around the world who had sent in words and that James Murray corresponded with. Did a thrill go up your spine, Sarah? What do you remember feeling? Well, for me, because I used to work as an editor on the dictionary, I've always wanted to know more about those those people. So yes, in that moment, it just went in slow motion. And I thought, my goodness, finally, we, we can solve this puzzle and find out who all these people were. And I was really curious about them. I basically just wanted to know more about them. The contributors to this first monumental edition of the Oxford English Dictionary lived in the 19th and early 20th century. But before you tell me about them, you managed to meet a contemporary contributor. How did you first hear about someone called Chris Collier? I first heard about Chris Collier when I first worked for Oxford Dictionaries. And that was about 35 years ago. When I first worked there as a lexicographer, I used to be in charge of opening the the mail. And every month, this bundle of slips would come in. So when people contribute to the dictionary, they read their local book or their newspaper and they write out slips with those quotations on them and they send those quotations into the dictionary. So every, every month, this bundle of slips would come in and they'd be eccentrically wrapped in cornflake packets with bits of dog hair stuck on them. And they all came from this one man living in Brisbane, Mr. Chris Collier. And remarkably, they all came from a single source. They were all from his local Korea Mail newspaper. 
And so that's how I first discovered him. Over a period of 35 years, he sent in over 100,000 slips. All from the Courier-Mail? That's it. He's sending these slips in with the hope that some of those words that he's pulled out from the daily edition of the Courier-Mail will be accepted by the good people of the Oxford English Dictionary. How many did how many out of that 100, more than 100,000 were successful? Well, there are thousands of words now from the Korea Mail. <laughs> and I did an analysis, actually, of the number of quotations from the Korea Mail with respect to all the other quotations in the dictionary. And there are more quotations from the Korea Mail than, than they are from Virginia Woolf or T.S. Eliot. <laughs> I don't know so whether you're thousands. proud or mortified by this fact, Sarah. <laughs> what sort of words? Oh, my goodness. He sent in words like Mad Max, which is in the dictionary, uh, Pooper Scooper. Uh, <laughs> there are so many words that he sent in. It's, yeah. And, and at the Oxford English Dictionary offices now, there is a room called the Quotation Room, which is full of all these little drawers with these uh, slips in them. And if you open up any of those drawers, you will find quotations in Mr Collier's handwriting. (laughs) And so was he sort of famous or infamous among the staff? He was because, in fact, I first worked for Oxford Dictionary down in Australia where he sent quotations. And then I came over to Oxford to work at the mothership of the Oxford English Dictionary here. And as soon as I arrived, people were like, oh, you're Australian. Do you know Mr. Collier? <laughs> so it turned out that he was sending thousands of slips to here as well over in Oxford. And so he was incredibly famous. You speak to any of the editors of the OED and they all know of Mr. Collier because of him sending in so many slips. Yeah. And so was much known about him, about his life or his occupation or, or how he'd come to make such a an enormous contribution. No, nothing was known because, in fact, on these parcels which he sent us monthly, he just gave us a P.O. box address. So we knew that he lived in Brisbane, but we didn't know exactly where and we knew absolutely nothing about him personally. And I was always in intrigued because I was from Brisbane myself and I was wanting to know more about him. And luckily one day he he happened to ring the offices of the dictionary and this was back in the early 2000s and I could hear him putting a 20 cent pieces into the public phone and I got on the phone and said, Mr. Collier, I'd love to visit you when I come up and visit my family. And he said, okay, and he agreed to that and he said, meet me in the park behind the Paddo Tavern in Paddington. <laughs> So I, I I did that. I flew up and I walked into the park and there was this elderly gentleman sitting at a park bench in the morning sunshine reading the Korean Mail, of all things. Uh, well, of course he was. Of course he was. And so what kind of man was he? What insight did you get into what was driving him? What was remarkable about Mr. Collier is that his life story was actually very similar to a lot of the other thousands of people who contributed to the dictionary. So what my research revealed for this book is that, in fact, this is not a crowdsourced project for scholarly elites. This was actually a crowdsourced project from 
the amateurs, the autodidacts, the really, they really were and are the general public. And Mr. Collier was very similar. He left school at 14. He then uh, eventually worked in for the Queensland government. And he told me that in the 1970s, in the mid-70s, he read an article in the Korea Mail where the chief editor of the dictionary at that time, Bob Birchfield, was putting out an appeal and asking people around the world to read their local books and send in their their local words. And he read this appeal and he thought to himself, imagine if I could get one word into the dictionary. And so that is what started him. And he, as I said, he he did that for over 30 years and sent in over 100,000 words. What did you discover, Sarah, were, were Chris's other hobbies besides sending in words to the dictionary? At the time, he spoke to me about his, uh, his collection of not just words, but collection of movie posters. And this was a real um, obsession and um, passion and his uh, neighbours spoke of the fact that many of his windows would be full of, of uh, you know, rolled up posters and that he really had a very significant poster collection. So movies and words were two of his passions. He also was known as the local naturist in uh, Paddington and he used to mow his lawn without his clothes on and go out walking late at, late at night, gathering newspapers as well. When he, he passed away in 2010, were the people who knew him, were they aware of this, this connection with the dictionary? No, I don't think that, that his neighbours or friends really knew of the degree of his contribution to the English language because it's thanks to him really that there is such, a, such an excellent coverage of Australian mm. English within the OED. How did you, on behalf of the the OED, want to thank him for his contribution? What did you offer? So while I was sitting down talking to him, after a couple of hours, I said, you know, it'd be wonderful to fly you over to Oxford, Mr. Collier, and show you the workings of the dictionary. You could meet the editors and see firsthand how we put together the, the dictionary with your quotations. And I thought that he'd jump at that, but he thought for a moment and then he said, oh, but I couldn't possibly. Just imagine all the career mails waiting for me when I got home. <laughs> well, he was a modern day contributor, but it, it seems like the devotion and the slight mania that he had for word finding and word submitting was something that was shared by the original contributors back in the 19th century in the lead up to the publication of the first edition. Why were all these volunteers essential in the writing of a dictionary? I mean, why couldn't it just be like lexicographers and philologists? Why was James Murray needing volunteers to submit words? So in the middle of the 19th century, when these three men came up with the idea of creating the dictionary, uh, they were members of the London Philological Society, and they came up with an idea of having the first dictionary of 
every word in the English language and they wanted this dictionary to be different from every dictionary which had come before it. This is in 1858 and a hundred years before that Samuel Johnson had put out his dictionary which was a quite a prescriptive text telling people how what what words mean, how they should be uh, used, whereas they wanted to create a descriptive text, one that that was based on written sources that actually showed how normal people use words. And they realised to do such a, such a massive job needed um, help. So they reached out then to people and asked them, as I said, to uh, read their lo- local books and send in their local words. And when you think about it, no one had really crowdsourced something before. So they had no idea whether someone would write back. But in fact, so many people wrote back and sent in their local words on these little four by six inch slips of paper that in fact Royal Mail had to put a red post box outside the house of the editor, James James Murray. And if you go to 78 Banbury Road in North Ox- Oxford today, where his house is still standing, you'll see that very red pillar box is still there. <laughs> well, James Murray wasn't the first editor of the Oxford English Dictionary, but he was the longest serving and the man most associated with, with the project. Why did he get the job? Well, on paper, there wasn't a lot to really... Uh, qualify him for for the role. He left school at fourteen. He taught. He lived in a um, very modest uh, village on the Scottish borders, and he taught himself twenty five languages by reading the Gospels and the translations of the Gospels. Twenty five. Twenty five yes. languages. <laughs> and he then became a schoolmaster and. Uh, he was a specialist in the Scots dialect and he wrote a wonderful dictionary of that in the 1870s. And it, it, it was through his work on language and dialect that he came in touch with this uh, man called A.J. Ellis, Alexander John Ellis, who was writing a dictionary of the English dialects. And he was a pronunciation specialist. And so he got in, someone said, oh, there's this Scots uh, head um, schoolmaster who is very good with language. I recommend you speak to him. And they then became firm friends. And it was thanks to Ellis recommending Murray for the job of chief editor that he got the job. But he wasn't a a professor, he wasn't a don, he didn't come from some establishment family. Would he have been something of an outsider in that Oxford world at the time? He was a total outsider, yes, and he was never really accepted within Oxford because everything about him was countercultural for how Oxford was in those days. He was Scottish rather than English. He was a nonconformist rather than an Anglican. He was a, a teetotaler at a time when really the cool thing to do in in Oxford was just to drink and smoke and hang out in, in the senior common rooms. He was never made a member of the senior common room. Um, and he also was very, uh, he was a hard worker. So he used to get up at 4am and work until midnight at a time in Oxford when that was not 
the done thing. <laughs> so he really stood out as an outsider and was never brought into the to the to the gown part of the town. He was really on the fringes with within Oxford. Was he self-conscious about that, do you think, Sarah, or was he confident in, in those remarkable intellectual abilities and linguistic abilities that he clearly had? Mm, I think when you read his letters, he's a little, and he writes to his children later in life, and he says, oh, I'm pleased that I didn't get noticed here because the most important thing for me was to write the dictionary. However, I think that personally he was probably disappointed because he was given an honorary doctorate by the University of Edinburgh early on and he then wore his scholar's cap that that he was given as part of the ceremony. And he wore that scholar's cap to work every day in, in the little shed in his back garden, which he uh, called the scriptorium, because <laughs> what happened was he was trying to write the dictionary from inside the family house. And he had 11 children and his wife, his long-suffering wife, Ada, said, James, you've got all of these slips, all of these books and papers you have to get out of the house. So she pushed him out into the garden and he built this garden shed, which was partially dug into the garden. And during the winter, it was always dank and cold and the editors had to wrap their legs in newspaper to stay warm. And so I can just picture him in this back garden, in this shed, wearing his scholar's cap. So I do think that, of course, naturally, he would have liked to have been better recognised. So he had 11 children and was working these enormous hours in the garden on, on the creation and management of this dictionary. How were his family involved in the project? Yes, as soon as the dictionary pe people sent in slips and Murray re received them, he then got these 11 children to help him and they were put to work to sort out the slips. So they were asked to sort sort the slips alphabetically and then chronologically within the en entry. And he paid them one penny an hour to do that work. <laughs> So there were, I think we would call them Easter eggs now. There are, there are these little references, these little personal references uh, littered throughout the dictionary. And uh, in the letter A, which, which was what he was working on when his wife Ada was giving birth to their daughter Elsie. And so under the word arrival, he added the sentence, the new arrival is a little daughter. <laughs> You describe him as this learned and erudite, incredibly hardworking fellow, but how did he get about Oxford? What was his mode of transport? He loved bicycles <laughs> and he used to have uh, a couple of tricycles which he would ride around Oxford. He he was a familiar sight with his long flowing white beard and he would often wear a black cape and he wasn't too good at at braking. So he had a typical way of stopping 
which is basically he he would fall off <laughs> off the bicycle with a bit of a clang. <laughs> well, that'll do the job, I suppose. So you described, Sarah, that the um, Royal Mail had to install this special mailbox, pillar box outside of his house to cope with all of the submissions. But how were they, I mean, how did he make this request known in the days long before internet and social media? How did the world know that James Murray wanted them to send in examples of curious words. He put out a global appeal and this was a call to people around the world. They were really advertisements that he put in journals and newspapers and also through clubs and societies, which in that day, they were really like social media today. They were places where people with similar interests came together to share their interests. And so in clubs and societies, there were thousands of leaflets distributed. And what motivated people? Because this was volunteer work on the whole. It wasn't paid. What inspired people or or got people to to agree and spend their time doing this, do you think? Uh, This was a key question for me, what was motivating them. And particularly, I think, when I discovered that most of them were autodidacts, people who had left school early. A lot of them were were women. There were far more women than we thought. Uh, and a lot of them were also Australians and Americans. So from people from all around the world, and many of them were not part of the scholarly elite. So I think that they were motivated by the opportunity to be part of a project that was attached to a prestigious university and which gave them access to a world that they were otherwise excluded from. This was also an era, though, wasn't it, Sarah, where there were lots of different kinds of uh, national data gathering projects? Yes, there were two other uh, crowdsource projects going on at the time. One was the uh, British Rainfall Organisation, which asked people to collect rain during during the night and then send in their Many opportunities for that in England, Sarah. There are, exactly. <laughs> there still are. It's pouring with rain today. And, uh, and so, in fact, I've got a whole chapter, R for Rain Collectors, and these were people who collected words during the day and rain during during the night. There were a few people who are also dictionary people who collected wildflowers. So the Botanical Society asked people to collect wildflowers from around their houses in all the rural parts of Britain uh, so that they could map and plot where flowers grew. So there was sort of a civic sense of of duty of of assisting with this great scientific era? Is that part Mm. of what's going on here as well? Yes, definitely. Yes, I think there's definitely a community spirit and a wanting to contribute to national projects for sure. And while some of them may may have had nationalistic uh, desires uh, and wanting to perhaps even create a dictionary that was a national dictionary and a very British dictionary. James Murray's vision was a very global one and he really wanted people to send in words from all around the world and that's why he particularly was uh, thrilled when a gentleman in Australia sent him so many words that, in fact, he suggested to this contributor from Australia who was in Melbourne, uh, Edward Ellis, he suggested that, in fact, he 
create a dictionary of Australian English himself because he was sending in so many words. There's a surprising thing, Sarah, that the top four contributors to Murray's Dictionary have in common. What is that? The top four contributors all had connections with psychiatric hospitals, which were called lunatic asylums back then. So in the British census, uh, there was a column, in fact, where they described if someone was deaf, dumb, blind or a lunatic. And so uh, to research these dictionary people, I, tra- I tr- you know, trawled through a lot of censuses and discovered that, yes, uh, my top four contributors all had connections with asylums. Was that something that you would have expected from your knowledge of how dictionaries work and what they do to people or what sort of people are attracted to them? Well, we knew that there was one uh, man called Dr Minor, and you're probably familiar with a wonderful book that was published about 20 years ago called The Surgeon of Crowthorne, and that's the story of Dr Minor. He was an American who came to London and murdered someone there and was put into Broadmoor Asylum for the Criminally Insane, and it was there that he contributed to the dictionary because he was a very learned man who had a wonderful collection of of 17th century medical texts. And Broadmoor was a very lenient asylum and they let him have his book collection there. So every, every morning, Dr. Minor would wake up and go from his cell to the cell next door where his books were stored. And he'd spend hours hours there writing out slips and sending them in to Murray. So Murray, of course, was receiving a lot of work from Dr. Minor, who and his address was Broadmoor, but he just presumed that this man was a doctor working at Broadmoor, not an inmate. But after 20, 20 years, he eventually goes to visit him and, of course, notices that there are chains ar- around his legs. And in fact, he, he was an inmate. Do you know what it meant for their relationship? Yes, we do know. And he actually had great respect for him. And his letters say that Murray said that he was of sound mind and a very intelligent, thoughtful man. He was also very wealthy and he used to send money to Murray. And in fact, he funded a trip for Murray and his wife to go to South Africa in the early 20th century. So Murray actually had a lot of respect for him and helped him uh, get out of Broadmoor, not to be released into the public, but to go back to America, where he returned to St. Elizabeth's Asylum, which was where he had already spent time. Podcast and broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Kanofsky. The fact that inmates of asylums played such a prominent role in the creation of the dictionary, what do you put that down to? I mean, were there similarities between these different cases? I do think that there was something similar. So there were two other men who were in and out of asylums and they, one of them sent sent in 165,000 slips and the other one sent in 151,000 slips. So there was definitely an obsessive aspect to them and they were 
compulsive, I am sure. One of them had rushes on particular types of words. So he specialised for like several years on just body and he would send in words to do with diseases and ailments um, and just read, you know, thousands of books sending in that. So I think that these people were probably neurodiverse and probably just on the spectrum, but in the 19th century that may have been interpreted as a mental illness. So I think they were probably unfairly committed to psychiatric hospitals back back then. Yeah. There was a, a faithful sub-editor working for Murray, a man named John Dormer, who was committed to Croydon Mental Hospital in 1907. What diagnosis was he given? When he arrived, he was diagnosed as overworked. So was it the fault of the dictionary? Yes. What happened was John Dormer, as a teenager, sent in really great work to the dictionary and James Murray immediately recognised the brilliance of this young man. So rather than let him continue being a reader who sent in words, Murray flipped it and sent this young man slips. And over a 10-year period, he sent him 250,000 slips because... I mentioned that Murray's children sorted them alphabetically and then chronologically, but then the editor, it was the editor's job to sort them in, to sort them semantically. And it's a very difficult task to sort a word semantically because uh, some, some words have many different senses. And if you've got a pile of slips in front of you and you're trying to work out what sense of that word is demonstrated by that slip. It's a really tricky task. So John Dormer did this for 10 years. And after 10 years, he he was going through a really difficult time. His wife had died in the September and he was spending Christmas alone working on the letter S and he was trying to sort all of these slips that were to do with sound. And he began to hear the walls speaking to him and he described it to the doctor in the asylum. He said that he could hear voices and that his neighbours were trying to uh, shoot darts at him. So he went out onto the street with a gun and that's where he was arrested. And the police could only identify him from a, a bundle of letters which John Dormer carried inside his coat pocket. And they were letters from James Murray, which again, I found very poignant because it just showed to me not only how devoted he was to the dictionary, but how devoted he was to James Murray. Did he recover, Sarah? He spends months in the asylum. And so when the police write to James Murray and say that we have someone here with a bunch of your letters, what surprised me is that Murray was most concerned about the slips. And he's very (laughs) concerned about getting the slips out of John Dormer's house back to the scriptorium, which he manages to to do. And I noticed that the date of his release on the hospital records matched uh, the date of his final letter to Murray, where he writes to Murray and he apologises for not contributing for several months. And he says, but don't worry, I am out of hospital now and I will continue and I will send, send, send you work soon. But then I couldn't find any more letters and I tried to research him and I couldn't find a death certificate. So I have no idea what then happened to 
John Dormer. A friend of James Murray, A.J. Ellis, played a very valuable role in the creation of the dictionary. Tell me about the coat that (laughs) Mr. Alexander John Ellis was famous for. He had an overcoat which he called Dreadnought, and it was a big coat with 28 pockets. (laughs) And he kept in that coat the most eccentric items like a tuning fork because he specialised in sound and uh, a book just in case he was kept waiting. He always wanted to have something to read, but he also kept a corkscrew, even though he was a teetotaler, and a piece of cake just in case friends got peckish. <laughs> and he wore, wore, wore these large shoes as well that were oversized, which, which he called barges. Ellis's life took an unusual turn when he was a child because at the age of 10, his mother's cousin got in touch and said, I will give you my fortune and I will give my fortune to to your son if he changes his name from Sharp to Ellis. And so his mother said, sure. (laughs) So he changed his name then at the age of 10 to Alexander John Ellis and from that day, Thanks to this fortune, he went to Eton and then he went to Trinity College, Cambridge, and he never had to work for money. So he was your prototypical gentleman scholar Mm. who was fascinated by sound and was a pioneer of phonology and phonetics. And in fact, today, the International Phonetic Alphabet is uh, thanks to Ellis, he developed a precursor to that. And he also wanted to revolutionise the spelling of English. So he came up with a whole new way of spelling English, which, which he called glossotype. And people gathered around him. James Murray was one of the supporters. And they, were, they became known as glossotypists. What was driving that? What did he want to do differently? Why did he want to change the way spelling worked in English? It was actually rooted in a social justice. So they recognised that the spelling of English was so complex with the same sound being spelt in many different ways. And they thought that that was a barrier for people to learn English. So this was a social justice endeavour in which they wanted to simplify the spelling of English because they felt that then the working classes and people who didn't have access back then to good educations, they felt that it might be easier for them to become literate. I mean, correct spelling is now taken as a, a mark of education or even of intelligence, but that wasn't always the case. No. And in fact, in the, you know, 17th and 18th century, there was variation in uh, spelling. And it's really only thanks to the creation of dictionaries, which then standardised language, which you then came to having, you know, one prescribed spelling or a couple rather than several. So in fact, it's, it, it is in the 19th century and the early 20th century that standardised spelling really comes into the fore. And in the late 19th century, there was this fad to try and simplify the spelling. You said that James Murray was a a fan of this or a supporter of it. Did they actually employ it practically or was it more theoretical? They did employ it practically. So going through James Murray's papers, which are housed in the Bodleian Library here in Oxford, 
I, I was finding a lot of letters between him and, and Ellis where it seemed to be written in a completely different language until I realised, no, this was glossotype. <laughs> and in fact, they would write to one another in that spelling. Not all of the contributors were as valuable to James Murray as Mr Ellis or those learned inmates of various asylums. Karl Marx's daughter was a disappointment, though to be fair, as you explain it, Sarah, she had a lot else going on in her life. Give me a sense about the kind of world that she was living in 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 the 1880s. Karl Marx's daughter, Eleanor, was going through a rough patch. Uh, She was uh, going out with someone who wasn't proposing to her. Uh, Her mother was ill. Her father was being difficult. And she needed money because she actually wanted to be an actress. And so to make money, she spoke to Frederick Furnival, who was the editor before James, James Murray, and asked for work. And so Frederick Furnival said, okay, I'll arrange for you to be paid to do some reading for James Murray and to send in slips. James Murray reluctantly agreed to pay her. But then all that she did was she went into the British Library and she just took off the shelf an existing dictionary, a glossary, and just wrote out slips from that and sent them in to Murray. Murray was, of course, furious. There's part of me that kind of admires the chutzpah of Eleanor doing that, of just taking an existing dictionary. I mean, I I feel for her. She had a lot going on. You also mentioned, I think, that she had a cousin who was under the impression or was hallucinating that she'd written Little Women, which is not a a common problem to have to deal with in a cousin. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. No, there were so many things going on for poor Eleanor. But (laughs) The uh, one of the fun fun things about James Murray's ad- address books is that you can look look through it, and James Murray writes little little notes about people. So if one of the women who's sending in slips gets gets married, he will write a note. Oh, on on this date she married, and then her name is changing to this. But there are other people who he writes gone, uh, gave up, <laughs> no no good. Uh, imposter or stole the book and or hopeless. And so, yeah, Eleanor was definitely one of those hopeless contributors. (laughs) Tell me about a, a man who became, another man who became a great friend of James Murray, Joseph Wright, because he seems to, to give a wonderful, be a wonderful example of a most unexpected trajectory in life. Where did he begin life, Joseph Wright? Yes, he started life in a poor village in Yorkshire called Idol, and his mother put him to work at the age of six in, a, in one of the Yorkshire mines, and he becomes what's called a donkey boy. So that's a, a child who rode a, a donkey carrying the tools for the miners. At the age of 11, he leaves the mine to go and work in a cotton mill, And by the age of 15, he still can't read or write because he hasn't been to school. But he goes to morning tea and one of the fellow workers is reading out loud from the newspaper and he's captivated by the stories that that he's hearing and he vows there and then to learn to read. So he basically goes from the age of 15, not being able to read, eventually he becomes the Professor of Comparative Philology at Oxford. 
Just so I know that you're not making that up, Sarah, you have to give me a, a few more stepping stones along the way. How did he go from deciding to want to learn to read at 15 in, in, a, in a mill to a professorship? I mean, that's just extraordinary, particularly in that era. Yes, he teaches himself. He he is a great walker, so he uh, walks to night school every every evening after work. I mean, this man slept about three or four hours a night, and he teaches himself to read and write. And then he starts to teach local people how to read and write inside his mother's house. So people come at night, and that's how he makes money extra money, and then eventually he goes to Cologne and to Europe and does his PhD, and then he comes back to Oxford and gets this amazing job. I imagine he and James Murray had a lot to talk about, about unexpected futures that they both shared. I think so, and they became the closest friends and they used to sit together and drink tea in the back garden next door to the scriptorium. He had a wonderful sense of sense of humour, and I think that they had a lot of fun together. The intention of this dictionary was to include every word that was used in English, but it wasn't quite every word. Where did James Murray draw the line on the kinds of suggestions for contributions? There were a few occasions when a word didn't get into the dictionary. So. What would ha- happen then, and it's still the case now, is that the the editors would do as much as they could on a particular en- entry. And if it was a specialist word, then they would send it to a specialist in that field and ask them to 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 check it. So Murray, for the medical words, used to send them to a Dr. James Dixon. And he sent the word appendicitis to James Dixon, who wrote wrote back and said, look, really, really, I don't think you should put in any itis words because once you put in one, you're going to have to put in hundreds. It's a fad. So I recommend it's a fad. <laughs> so Murray leaves out the word appendicitis and the dictionary wasn't published all in one go in 1928 when it was finally finished. It was published gradually. So the letter A came out in the 1880s and in... 1902, at the coronation of Edward VII, uh, the coronation was delayed because the king got appendicitis. So suddenly everyone was talking about appendicitis, but no one could find it in the dictionary. So Murray regretted leaving it out. But in fact, all of the coarse words and the swear words, such as the C word and the, the F word, Murray had collected as much as he could a lot of slips for those those words because they are very old words that had been around for cent- centuries. So there were good reasons for those words to go into the dictionary. But at, at the time, there was a big court case going on because there was John Stephen Farmer was a slang lexicographer and he was writing a really wonderful slang dictionary. And there was such a thing as the... Public Obscenities Act, which said that you weren't allowed to produce any material that was obscene. And so John Stephen Farmer was being sued for his dictionary, which had the C word and the F word in it. And I found letters from Farmer to Murray saying, this is 
the terrible situation that I am in, and he recommended that he not publish them, and Murray doesn't publish them, which I think was the right decision for that time. Uh, and so, yes, the C word and the F word had to wait until the 1970s and the 80s to get into the dictionary. So with all these thousands of contributors working all around the globe, spending countless unpaid hours reading and transcribing, there's finally the completed dictionaries published in, in 1928. How was that celebrated? That was celebrated with a grand dinner in London at the Goldsmiths Hall where the Prime Minister was present, all of the, the great and the good, a lot of the media were there. And this was the big chance for Oxford University Press to spread the word about the publication of this dictionary. So you had all of the great and good there. But the one thing missing were the dictionary people. But none of the contributors <laughs> were That's invited. right. No, and the BBC broadcast the dinner because the prime minister spoke and this and I can just imagine them all sitting in their houses listening to the wireless and I hope that they that they were feeling proud that all the work that they had done was finally finished and had resulted in a published dictionary because basically without them the dictionary could never have been published at that dinner there were also no women allowed there were three women present, two of whom were daughters of editors, so James Murray's daughter and also another editor, Henry Brad Bradley's daughter, Eleanor. They were at the dinner, but they had to sit up in the balcony and watch and watch down onto the men eating. How important had women been as contributors in the dictionary? They were hugely important. Uh, there were probably close to 500 women who sent in slips and did readings. And they were this wonderful cast of brilliant women who clearly weren't given the same opportunities, certainly in education, as the men. But we still have one of the first astronomers, Elizabeth Brown. We have one of the first Egyptologists, the wonderful Margaret Murray, who started life living in Calcutta and used to send in slips from Calcutta and sent in a lot of Indian English words. She used to wake up early and go to the roof of their house while it was still cool and read her mother's books and send in slips to Murray. Uh, so they were fantastic women. And I think that this was an opportunity for them to use their brains and their intellects at a time where there weren't a lot of opportunities for them to do that. Did James Murray live to see the great day of complete publication? James Murray did not. So the dictionary wasn't finished until 1928. And James Murray died in 1915. So he died without knowing whether his life's work would ever be finished. And in fact, the final evidence of his writing on a slip down in that basement is for the word twilight. So I can just imagine that being the final word that he worked on in 1915. Over the years that you worked on this project on the Dictionary People, Sarah, did you feel his spirit was close, that some of his zealous energy for, for words and the people connected with words entered you? 
something did because <laughs> I, I, I became as obsessed about them as they were about the dictionary, for sure. Uh, there was just something about them that was actually joyous. There was a generosity to them that brought that out in me as well. So actually to research this book was an absolute joy and delight because of the people. They are joyous. And I managed to find things. You know when something just works and, like, I would have a question about someone and then, oh, my goodness, I would just find that exact letter. I just happened to make really serendipitous discoveries, which made me think that, yes, something beyond me was was helping me. The spirit of the scriptorium was guiding you. You (laughs) didn't begin your studies in linguistics, but in mathematics and computer science. How did you get from there to dictionaries? Well, the thing about linguistics, which is what I eventually discovered and majored in, is that it's not taught in schools. So it's really hard for young people to know about the field of linguistics, which is the science of language. So, yeah, I went to Queensland Uni um, and studied computer science and mathematics at first. And I was late one night while I was doing my final exams. I was in the Duchesne College Library and in front of me was this book on the shelf. So I probably, I should have been studying my maths, but I took this book off, which was called Language. And it I didn't know, but it's by Edward Sapir, and it's one of the foundational texts of linguistics, and it describes his experience of going to live with the Hopi North American Indian community and observing that their concept of time was cyclical rather than linear. And this just opened my mind because I, for the first time, realised that language was the key to culture and that we could access a whole new view of the world through someone's language. So I Yes, so then I went down to the Australian National University and uh, studied linguistics and found my passion. Time passes with all that that entails, even for dictionary people and people writing about dictionary people. What brought you back to Australia a month before your book was due? My mum, uh, who had been just walking around normal and fine, she was diagnosed with a rare type of cancer. And in fact, they gave her two weeks to live. So yes, so I flew out to be with her. And it was a bit of a stressful time because the book was due. A and I still time. had That's a couple Australian of chapters. understatement, Sarah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I can remember being, and but, you know, I took my laptop to her room where she was at my sister's house where she was dying. And there was a moment where I was tapping away on one of the chapters. Then the room just went silent and mum just said, how are the dictionary people going? (laughs) Which was so sweet. So, and then, um, so we read her one of the chapters. So she knew then about the book. So that's great. But Mm. she did pass pass away. But I dedicate the book to her. Mm. It's a sort of a wonderful testament about what these books are and that they're, they're created by living people with living language, but then they exist beyond any one individual life. They Mm. exist forever beyond us. Uh, I certainly hope so. And what's been one of the most uh, precious and heartening things about the publication of the Dictionary People has been that people are picking up some of the threads from 
within the book and doing their own research. Um, so, you know, just depending on sort of how many people send me things, it might be great to actually turn it into a website and people can can crowdsource it and we can continue this research together. Be careful. The Royal Mail will have to put a special red pillar box outside of your house <laughs> or whatever the internet equivalent of that is, Sarah. That's great. I love that. <laughs> it's just fascinating learning about what you've been learning. Thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Sarah. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.